glad you're here with us today at the Antioch campus of Blue Valley Baptist Church. Uh, last week, you know, is a heavy snow during church. This week it's 60 or whatever, so welcome to Kansas in Christmas. Uh, it's just the way it is. Why don't you find John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 19, if you would please. Names, names are obviously important things. As a matter of fact, when you stop and think about all of the responsibilities that we fulfill as human beings, if God brings you into parenthood, the most awesome responsibility you'll ever have is naming your child. They will be known by that name forever, right? Think about the weight of that. They will be known by that name forever. And we begin to pick up on the idea that this is an important thing pretty early on in our married lives. I know that Julie and I, when we were newly married, spent a lot of time thinking about what we would name our children someday. And we, in those early years of marriage, uh, spent our time focused on names that for boys sounded cool and for girls were pretty. Uh, I remember that one of the cool boy names that we were kind of zeroing in on was, wait for it, Gunner. Now, if your name is Gunner, I think it's a cool name, all right? I don't want to offend you at all. But we lived in rural Tennessee at that time. That was just a custom-made name to get a boy beat up every day at school. So, so we pulled away from, from that name, and as we got closer to actually bearing children, we began to move away from names that sounded cool or pretty and began to focus in on names that had meaning and weight and maybe legacy to them. That's, that's why we found ourselves drawn to names in Scripture. And we loved the testimony of bold faithfulness that the person in Scripture, Caleb, manifested. And we loved the testimony of wisdom in the life of Abigail that was manifested in Scripture. And so that is why we named our children what we named them, their names carried with them weight. It carried with them meaning. Now, even a quick glance into the Old Testament will let you know that, that the naming of a child was almost prophetic, that, that, that giving a child a name was, was in an essence kind of pronouncing a prophecy over that child's life. At the very least, it was given in the hope that the child would grow into the name that was called forth. So, you, you see a person in Scripture named Caleb, which means bold, and in Scripture he was. And you see a person named Abigail in Scripture, which means wisdom or, or source of joy, and, and she was a, a source of joy. Names are important. And that is especially true of the name of Jesus. They were commanded, Mary and Joseph, to name their child Jesus. They didn't get a choice. They didn't get to go through the Hebrew baby book and look to see what we could name our child. They were commanded to give him the name Jesus. And they were commanded by the angel to give him that name, not because it sounded cool, but because he would actually be the name of Jesus. Jesus, you see, is the Hellenized, the, the Greek version of the Hebrew Aramaic name Yeshua, which is a shortened version of the name that we know as Joshua. That is a name which means to deliver or to rescue. So Jesus means, his name means salvation. 
Now, the expectation that the dawn of the age of the Messiah was at hand in the first century was, was off the charts. People were expectantly looking for the Messiah. They believed that everything pointed to that being the time in history when the Messiah would come. And so when John the Baptist comes and begins to do his public ministry and thousands are drawn to him, coming to him, his message of repentance from sin and baptism in the wilderness, people began to whisper loudly to one another, maybe this is the one. Maybe this guy is the Messiah. It reached all the way up to the highest levels of the Jewish religion. And so emissaries from headquarters go out to him to ask him the question, are you the one that we should be looking for? And I want you to look at how that transpires in verse 19 of John chapter 1. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the one. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one you're looking for. But they had further questions. They asked him two. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. And are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now let's make sure we understand what's going on there. He, he is not saying that I am the reincarnated version of Elijah. And you'll say, well, wait a minute. If you study scripture, doesn't Jesus say that he was? Well, Jesus says that John the Baptist fulfilled the role of Elijah as a prophet as someone who would prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah. But it, it doesn't seem that Jesus believed that he was actually the embodiment of a, a reincarnated, if you would, Elijah. He, he didn't believe that. And then John the Baptist about himself would have never said anything that celebrated about himself. He always, he always pulled back from any kind of notice of himself and pushed it forward. So that's not a troubling Thing. And then he's asked, are, are you the prophet? Meaning, are you the prophet from the book of Deuteronomy, like Moses, that would come? Which is another way of saying, are, are you really? You're the Messiah, aren't you? And, and he, said, he said, no. And so they then say, well, who are you? That's right there in Scripture. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then he draws upon Old Testament Scripture. And speaks to his function. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So I'm one here to prepare the people for the Messiah, but I am not the Messiah. In essence, he says, Messiah, Christ, is not my name. My name is John. John means gracious, and it is my job to tell you that God is graciously sending someone after me who is that long-awaited Messiah, who will deliver people from their sin, and I am to prepare you for his arrival. And so the Jewish emissaries left, and then they go back to Jerusalem, and they say, he's not our guy. Turns out they should have waited one more day. Because later on in John, we read these words. The next day, he, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That phrase, the Lamb of God, has become so much a part of the spiritual language of the, of the church that Jesus' followers might have a hard time figuring out that when those words were spoken, people found them to be almost like a riddle. 
very enigmatic. They didn't know really what John was saying. In fact, the scholarly consensus of conservatives is that John himself might not really have known even what he was saying when he spoke the words. The reaction of the people listening to him when he said, Behold the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world would have all, in all likelihood been, Well, I don't know what that means. Can you explain it to me? Had you actually posed the question to John the Baptist, it's likely that he would have interpreted the phrase in the imagery of the Jewish sect that most people believe that he was a part of. He, we believe, was a part of a, of a group of people called the Essenes. The Essenes, for those of us who might not be tied into to biblical history, were the, the curators of what are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were the ones that collected all of those things. And they were a, a, a group of Jewish contemplatives, really almost monk-like, in that they pulled back from modern society, although marriage wasn't strictly prohibited, and they looked forward to, prepared their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And in the various passages that were important to them, the, the image of a lamb was not as the lamb and lowly, meek and mild that we think of. It was that of a warlike lamb who would come in judgment of sin. So he probably understood his words as a declaration that Jesus was the Messiah who had come in terrible judgment to wipe out the sin of the world. This would have been very consistent with the message that he was preaching to the people. Luke actually includes a bit of his message in his retelling of this scene in Luke chapter 3. There he says, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then get these words, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn in unquenchable fire. There's no silent night in those words. Those are, those are confrontational, combative, judgment, wrath words. These verses make it clear that John the Baptist expected that's what the Messiah was coming to do, that he was coming to exact judgment from the world and that he was going to rid the world in that judgment of its sin. And so when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's likely he's saying, that guy there is the dude that's going to drop the hammer on all of you. Turns out he was right. Jesus did drop the hammer on sin, but what John couldn't see at that point, in fact, what his Christ's own disciples refused to accept until after the resurrection, was that the Messiah would drop the hammer on himself. That he would suffer and that in his suffering, he would take away the sin of the world. You see, we've had 2,000 years of Christian history to connect Jesus to Isaiah 53. But in real time, in real time, as these people were trying to figure all of this out in real time without the benefit of teaching for 2,000 years, they don't know what's going on. How do I connect what's going on in Isaiah 53 with the Messiah who is to come? But we get 
Jesus. We see Jesus in Isaiah 53, 6 and 7, which says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We can't help but see the work of Jesus in those verses. We see in those verses what is meant even if John couldn't fully appreciate it, even if the hearers couldn't fully appreciate it, that Jesus was indeed the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Passover Lamb of God that has come to take away the sin of the world by judging sin in His own body and in His own sacrifice. But people struggle to get it in the moment. In fact, right up to the very end. And so the last night that Christ was on earth before his crucifixion, he used the Passover meal, which was common to the Jewish people, and interpreted it in an uncommon way as a means of preparing those who were closest to him for the spectacle of the one they loved on a bloody Roman cross the next day. It's easy for us to conveniently ignore the specter of that cross when we are singing of babes sleeping in heavenly peace at Christmas. But that cross was the point of the manger. The babe was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And as he stood with his disciples and experienced that Passover meal just hours before his death, he said, this is my body and this is my blood in the hopes of teaching his disciples one last time that it was through his death which they were about to witness, that sin would be judged and taken away forever. The person on that cross was the person who was in that manger. His name was Jesus. And Jesus means salvation. Now, let's thank God for that marvelous gift. Let's pray.